forever. Dog. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I love candy. Hey, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I'm a provocateur at the end of the day. Oh, boy. <laughs> Wait, okay. you've said candy. You've said you love candy, like, multiple times, I feel like. Well, I really love it. I passed by Dylan's the other day, Dylan's Candy Bar, and I was, like, had memories of us. Why didn't you get me anything? We, uh, well, you don't live near there anymore, so I've had to drive it to Marina Del Rey. Oh, and that's such a burden. Well, I was there. Could have brought it to this recording. I guess that's true. I could have. Well, I was wandering the Grove for the first time in a long time, and I was just thinking of you. Thank you. One time, uh, John got to New York before I did, and he went to the mall with my dad, and each got candy from the candy store there, and he didn't get me any, <gasps> and I bring it up all the time. Well, now I'm about to have that same problem. I, I know. Feel I'm like. going to bring it up You're all like, the time. Why? But we did go to a place in the farmer's market that had like um, caramel-covered marshmallows. Oh, they've got good stuff in that farmer's market. I know. It's so, it just like reminds me of like early us being friends when you lived by there and we would go to the Grove like all the time. I know. And like get those hot dogs, turkey dogs. Oh yeah, that was that. Yeah, yeah, the turkey dogs. And then they also had like a vegetarian hot dog that was just like a warmed up carrot in a bun. Do you remember oh, that? Oh my God, <laughs> yes. They made it. Their veggie dog was a carrot. Was a carrot. <laughs> <laughs> so gross. It was so funny. Oh, it was like a spiced carrot a in a spiced bun. Spiced carrot in a bun. And they, you I don't would think like, we ever even got it. We just like. And oh. you're supposed to put like ketchup and relish on it. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, anyway, this is us between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty about the culinary experience. What was the um the name of the restaurant that we would go to that was like like a. It was just like an American food restaurant that was in there. Marigolds? No, it started with a D. It's closed now. I don't know. Okay, well, we went there a couple times. At all. There was a great Brazilian place. Oh, yeah, the Brazilian where place. Where you could get a bunch of sides and not get any meat, and I would do that a lot. Yeah, the Brazilian place. And you place. had to really, like, they had a long line. And the, the what's the restaurant we used to go to? The Greek place. Remember? Oh, that Greek place. Oh, that Greek place. And yeah, that, and that place was, was so really good. good. That was really good. They We've had, we had so many beautiful conversations at that Greek place. <laughs> I can't remember one of them. Do you remember? Just our beautiful friendship over food at the Grove. <laughs> that was so lovely. Now we have nothing. We have nothing? <laughs> now you don't even bring me candy to Marina Del Rey. Oh my God. You know what? Yeah. <laughs> the people not in Los Angeles don't realize that that's fully like a 45 minute drive. 35. For me to bring you candy and in this temperature, it would have melted. Why is your car not air conditioned? You're right. In this situation, <laughs> my car is blazing hot inside. <laughs> I'm actually purposefully sweating. <laughs> Woo. Well, this is just between us. We already did Fuck. that. Fuck. <laughs> We've got a great episode for everyone today. Yes, we're going to be talking to Katie McCoy all about guide dogs, which was a, a really cute and really informative a conversation. And Katie is a fan who wrote in about wanting to talk about guide dogs on the show. We've had a few listeners write in and be like, hey, I'm an expert on this topic. Have me talk about it. And then we do. And twice it's been about dogs. I know. Really good. But I think we could have a trifecta. 
That's true. If someone has another topic surrounding dog, we had dog behavior and guide dogs. If you have something else you want to talk about about dogs, I would even accept wolves. Ooh, I would love wolves. Yeah, I would accept <laughs> wolves, dingoes, any sort of dog related thing. Bring it on. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I think either sea lions or seals are referred to as dogs of the sea. So we could have That's that true, as well. That's true if you want to do that. Yeah. Did you ever have to do a project about an animal like in school? Like Yes, I did the whooping crane. Allison, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> okay, okay. We had to pick an animal and then we all drew that animal and our drawings went on a shirt and I had that shirt for a really long time. But did you have to do like a report on it? I don't remember, but I think so. But I picked the whooping crane. I was a weird kid. Wow. Like the fact that now people can meet me and just sort of probably forget me because our interaction was so normal is like a huge accomplishment. Jesus Christ. I, wow. Okay. Interesting. Did you have to choose? We had to choose from like National Geographic magazines. Oh, wow. Pick from a magazine. You have no curiosity about what I chose? Oh, yeah, sure. What did you do? Wolves. the episode we're going to be talking about ethical wealth and whether it's possible to be wealthy uh in an ethical way yeah speaking of wealth please get our merch at justbetweenuspod.com or allisonraskinexposed.com <laughs> but first we have got to answer a listener's question and you know what that means hit it international question international question international question jessalyn oregon Hi, Gabe and Allison. I have a question that I hope will be relevant to other people out there. I've been sitting on this in my notes app for a while, but the other day I heard a familiar voice on a mailbag episode of Bad With Money. Keo. He happens to be in the film I'm about to mention, and holy shit, the world is the size of a kumquat. Yeah, so Keo is someone that I used to know in New York a long time ago, and then Keo's partner wrote in to Bad With Money and then Keo called in to Bad With Money. And like, I was like, holy shit, I can't believe this person's keeping track of my endeavors. That's so cool. It was really cool. <laughs> so here we go. Shout out to the kind soul people call Keo. To sum up my background, I come from a small conservative city in Oregon and decided in my mid-20s to go back to college and major in film. I feel like every part of my upbringing fought this dream of working in film, and I even waited until the last possible minute to tell my parents what my major would be. Mm -hmm. They always pushed me to pursue a career in the medical field since financial stability was not the norm for us, Mm -hmm. and being some kind of technician seemed like a no-brainer. That proved to be very boring, and after an internship in a pharmacy, I knew that was not the life for me. Mm. People who work in Walgreens pharmacies are the most miserable people. Hands down, they should have their own support group. Honestly, yeah, it's a it's a miserable job. I've very rarely gone into a pharmacy and seen people look happy. Shout out to one of the CVSs I go to because they've been very kind with me with regard to my testosterone. I love it. Flash forward to now, working in a restaurant by day and working in film on the side. I recently co-directed and edited a pornographic film, which is currently circulating in a hump film festival. Hey! Dan Savage, I know, I know, but the film is queer AF and the writer star is a badass trans woman. It is the most success I've achieved so far, and I'm pretty proud of the artsy, queer, comedic little film my team and I made. Yay! But even though residual checks are rolling in and about 7,000 people have seen the film so far, I'm afraid to tell my parents because they will have Christian heart attacks and maybe die. Mm -mm. The alternative, however, is that they think I'm a struggling artist about to move to L.A., 
where I will get stabbed or simply chewed up and spit out by the city. Mm. How and should I tell my parents about my success in porn? I've dealt them a few blows before. They know I'm not religious and I've lived with a partner without being married, etc. But pornography is a taboo topic. And my aunt in Texas already called my mom frantically telling her that I'm in porn <laughs> because she follows me on Instagram and doesn't understand Instagram. My mom hasn't mentioned this bewildering phone call to me. I only know because my poor middle child sister told me. Overall, I find it kind of exhausting to censor who I am and I am what I'm up to around my family. But if I stop censoring, I can never go back to the stalemate piece I have with them. Mm. I also edit a video podcast series that interviews various types of sex workers. So it's not just a one-off with adult content. Should I kill my Schrodinger's cat porn? I don't like that I just said cat porn. <laughs> Thank you for reading. Thank you for all the helpful and relatable content. I recommend you to everyone. Cheers, Jessalyn. Congrats on the hump day success. That's amazing. That festival is very cool. I, you know, it's interesting. My younger sister used to work on the business end of porn. She might be more qualified to answer this question because she had some, some struggles with telling people or people understanding what she did or people misinterpreting what she did. And, you know, it's also this like weird fine line of like, well, what would be so bad about being in the porn versus directing and editing the porn? You know, like it's this weird like morality thing. But I don't think you're obligated to do anything because if there's already this triangulation where they're freaking out and like telling your parents and your mom didn't then come to you and and ask or try to clarify or, you know, want to have that sort of open dialogue with you then you're an adult. And I don't know if you really need to have that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I feel very conflicted. Like I, I don't like fuck them. <laughs> tell them. <laughs> I think it's really like how much do you want to tell them and is not telling them getting in your way of having like an authentic relationship with them. Right. Because I think some people are really able to compartmentalize and it's like not that big of a deal for like someone that they love and are close to to not know about a big area of their life mm. and then there are other people like me where that's I see as like so bonkers and like oh my god I have to tell my parents everything yeah so I think it's a really personal question where it's like how much is not telling them affecting your relationship and closeness with them right and so if it's not really and it's more just like oh they'll think I'm kind of irresponsible for moving to LA, but like, who cares? Because I'm going to go to LA. I'll have work there. I, right, I, right, right. I have this success that they just happen to not know about. Then I think that maybe rocking the boat isn't worth it. But if you do feel like it's really causing like there to be a divide in this relationship, or it feels like yeah. you're hiding yourself and you don't like feeling that way, then I do think that it could be worth bringing it up. But I guess my biggest thing is to remember, like we say on this show all the time, that the first conversation is not the last conversation. Right, right, right. So I don't expect that you telling them will go well. But I also think that maybe how they feel about it could potentially change with time. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Um, there's, there's still such a stigma around working any anything to do with like adult entertainment or sex work. There's still like such a huge stigma around it, even in any sort of way, even across ages, like my sisters, some of her friends were a little weird, like, but you know, I think it's hard because I feel for you that you can't share your success with people that matter to you, like that you're not able to 
ha- be say, look at how successful I am and have people even monetarily, you know, and, and, and have the people closest to you say, wow, we're so proud of you. Or like, you're, you know, you're, you're, uh, this is so great. Like it really, as much as people say, you know, a lot of times, oh, I don't really care what my parents think, or I don't really want, like, I have seen with a few friends who do say that they do still at the end of the day, want their mom or dad to be like, wow, cool. You know, like it is like an instinctual thing. So when I was saying, you know, tell them, fuck them, I'm being flippant. But yeah, I mean, I, I think maybe it's finding that joy and proud of yourself within yourself, like not, you know, not saying like, if your parents do think you're some sort of failure moving out to LA, that like, that's okay. And that you know, that you are doing well, and you know, that you're proud of yourself. And you know, that you're supporting yourself, and you're happy with the work you make. And like, you can get that validation from how many people have seen the movie and how many people really love it. And like, understand that you're doing it for yourself and for your community and less so for parental approval, which I think we're taught to prioritize over everything for most of our lives. And it's interesting that you said that it's exhausting to censor yourself. And I think Mm. that that kind of like really probably gets to the heart of it, right? Because it seems like maybe you are someone who like omission is a burden. Yeah. And so like, right, it's that cost benefit. I don't know your parents, but it's like, what are the stakes? Does it mean that they would completely cut you off? Mm-hmm. Or would it just mean that they would disapprove and, and keep trying to get you to change careers? Those mm-hmm. are two very different outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so I think that if if it's more on the side of that, like they'll just be mad at you and it'll like cause tension versus like you will lose the relationship. Right. Then I think that maybe that is the kind of distress and turbulence that would maybe be worth you not feeling like you can be your full self around your family. Yeah. But if it is like that fear that they will like, you know, be completely estranged from you because of this, that's like a really, you know, that's a really big cost. Mm -hmm. Um, And at this point in your career, when you're not exactly sure where it's going to lead you anyway, where in six months you might realize this is like, absolutely the type of film you want to work in versus in six months you've discovered that like you love animation and you're doing something totally different and not ever revealing this to them doesn't really matter because it's not a part of your present anymore you know so I think if it's a really big cost I think it, it could be worth like seeing how far down this road you go. And then if you continue to really find joy and success in, in this field, Mm -hmm. then I think you'll probably get to a point where, where you would have to tell them for your relationship to even feel authentic. Yeah. Because they are, I have a friend whose parents constantly harangue her, harangue, is that how it goes? Harangue her being like, you don't make any money where you're not making any money. Like what job, what's your job? You know what I mean? And like that gets exhausting because it's like, well, she doesn't want to say what her job is, but like also mind your business. You know? <laughs> so like, I don't know. Part of me is like, if you want to, if they want to keep ask, my thing with my parents is like, if you want to keep asking, you're going to know. And if you don't want to know that's you did that to yourself. You know what I mean? And my parents aren't Christian who are going to like have a heart attack. They have, you know, their issues with certain things, but like, listen, if you've, you've asked, you get to know. And like, that's that's your problem. If it's a thing where it's going to make things awkward, then that's the case. But I'm saying, I mean, you know, you were talking about getting cut off. Like, I understand that's a different situation. But sometimes it's like, yeah, man, you you want to keep bringing this up, then you're going to get your answer. 
I also think there are different ways to tell people things and to frame things right. and to like. I directed and edited a movie that's in a festival. Right. And it's important because it's a queer movie and mm-hmm. it's, and it, you know, like what are, it's there's, way, there's, there's ways to frame things versus other ways that might, you know, I'm not saying they'll be receptive yeah. regardless, but I think there can be different ways. And I think there's also ways to be mindful of their reaction versus like getting mad at them for their reaction. No, totally. Yeah. And you're right that it could bring up, they could, you could, they could have a different opinion in six months. Although I hate, one thing I hate is like on, on Drag Race where the parents were like so against the kid doing drag. And then once the kid is really successful at drag, then it's like the parents are like, we're supportive now. And I always it, like I get it and like whatever. And that could be the situation here. But I'm always sort of like <laughs> one thing that I will say is I'll be like, like my friend Drew and I will be like, oh, we were worried that you were a faggot. But now you're a famous faggot. If you're going to be a faggot, at least be the best one. Or maybe over time they learned more about drag. Yeah, maybe. But it's just and they kind came of... to see the community and the joy. Right, and all right. It. I mean, it could. That's be. a more optimistic. It's game, a more yeah. optimistic. <laughs> game, yeah. But I think, um, I think, yeah, I think. Also, what's very funny? What if the parents are like, "Oh, that's amazing! Can we see the movie?" <laughs> <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Hopefully, that was helpful. If you want to submit your question, you can send it to just between us pod at gmail That's just between us pod at gmail Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Katie McCoy. So stay tuned. Just between us, it's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. This week on the show, we have Katie McCoy, who works in fundraising at Southeastern Guide Dogs, which provides guide dogs for the visually impaired, service dogs for veterans with PTSD, and companion dogs for kids with significant needs. She also has a guide dog named Bristol. Hi, Katie. Hi. Let's get to the important stuff first. Tell us everything about Bristol. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so Bristol is a yellow lab. She's actually like over to my left chewing on a bone right now because she wants to be included. That's (laughs) her way of being included. (laughs) She is nine years old. I have been with her for eight years. I got her when she was a year and a half old. Um, That's when she finished her training. And she is super energetic because I am and we are constantly going so she has to also be constantly going uh and she's like always super happy oh i love it and does the dog know like when it's working versus when it's not working yes so when they have their harness on that is when they know that they're working if they're not wearing their harness they're like a normal dog she like zoomies around the house loves to play fetch she would literally play fetch until she killed over and died (laughs) (laughs) neither of my dogs are that into fetch and it's so annoying because Phantom just wants to play tug of war, which is so much harder than just playing fetch. Yeah. Beans does nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Beans has never once wanted to engage in any way. But I'd love to dive into like how your, you know, your foundation works and why it's so important and how guide dogs make such an impact. Like what are some things that like people don't understand about how important it is for people to have service dogs? Yeah. So... I guess it depends on the the service. So I, if you want to start with guide dogs, it's a huge difference from when before I had a guide dog and now when I have them. I didn't get a guide dog until I was 24. I didn't want anyone to know that I was visually impaired. 
I acted like I was normal. I never used my cane. I just ran into stuff because, you know, that that was the better option to just run into stuff. And I didn't want to stick out. So there's no way to travel with a dog and not stick out. Like everyone will talk to you. Everyone gets so excited about the dog. And I just didn't want any part of that because my dad tried to get me to get one when I went off to college uh, when I was 18. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that ever. (laughs) But I would never go back. So if you do use your cane, a cane, unless you're going to swing it around in a circle and like whack people with it, which might be fun, it's not going to tell you like stuff that's above you. Mm. So you're still going to like run into a lot of signs, (laughs) a lot of like overhangs and things like that. The dog is trained to stop for those things. That was actually hugely life-changing because I don't have any peripheral vision. The biggest part that's difficult for me, um, that in the dark, I can't see in the dark, even if there's like street lights. It's just what I would assume it looks like for you guys if there's no stars or moon Mm -hmm. out. That's what I assume it looks like. But Bristol will stop for those overhangs. Prior to having Bristol, I had been hit by three cars. (sighs) So yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) A lot of people make right turns on red and they don't, necessarily look for pedestrians that are going to be able to cross. And since I don't have peripheral vision, I would start walking because the walkie sign would come on and they would make a turn and they would hit me. Um, And that happened several times. Like I said, that's a big one. It makes crossing streets very stressful. Again, a cane's not going to tell you that a car is turning. It's just going to be hit by a car. Um, (laughs) So... Those are things I think that are incredibly important. She also looks like um, I don't have good depth perception. So she keeps me from tripping, like going downstairs or up curbs. And then something that I think is very awesome is that they can find things. So that's one of the commands is find. So you can say find the door. And if you're like in a department store and you get turned around, you can't figure out your way out. The dog will find the door. It may not be the door you went in, but they will find a door. Um, (laughs) it depends. If it's a store you go to all the time, they'll find the same door you always go in. But if it's a new store, they will find a door, which can help orient you in the store. It can also help you, you know, get out. Or when you're approaching a building, if you can't find the door, um, that's something they can do. They can also do it for a route. So if you're somebody who takes the bus every day and you can tell them to find the bus stop and you will landmark that bus stop. They can't just find any bus stop. It's not really how it works. but If you take the same bus stop all the time, they can find that specific bus stop. And that can be really helpful if you go on routes every day. When I used to be a teacher, I also taught yoga and I would walk home from yoga and Bristol had the subway landmarked. So every time we would walk home, she would actually just turn into the subway parking lot, like on our (laughs) way home. So I could grab (laughs) me. Is it very breed specific? What kind of dogs can handle this amount of of work and and training? Yeah. So a lot of people ask why we don't rescue dogs and have every dog be a guide dog. And the reason for that is that it does takes a certain temperament to be able to deal with it. The main ones that they that schools use are Labradors, Golden Retrievers, and German Shepherds. Um, you'll see sometimes they'll use like Australian Shepherds or Vishlas, but those are a little bit more finicky on the training. So not a lot of schools use those anymore. I would say the majority of them are labs and it's because they're very easily trainable. They're very food motivated. So they want to do stuff to get food and they also can bond with multiple people. So if you have like, it's harder with a German Shepherd because a German Shepherd like bonds with a person and they want to be with that person. 
And throughout a guide dog's training, they are with a puppy raiser for a year. Then they come back to campus and they train for six months on campus with a trainer. And then they get to go with their person. So that's like three people they have to bond with in, the, in about a two-year two period. And it has to be a dog who's resilient enough to be able to do that and not be super depressed while they're doing it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is so wild to have like three totally different environments and owners in such a short period of time, but still like retain all of this knowledge. Yes. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely something that I, I bet is very stressful for for the dogs. But they I mean, they take to it so so well. How does the Southeastern guide dogs like how does it what's the start to where the dog ends up with the person? Yeah. So we do all of our genetics and reproduction on site. I know at least the top four guide dog schools in the United States do that. There are 12 accredited guide dog schools. If there's somebody out there looking for a guide dog, do not go to a school that is not accredited. I don't know what you're going to get out of that dog. (laughs) And they're not all connected. So just to be clear, they're like separate schools. Okay. But all four of those do breed all of their dogs on site. We start immediately when they're born with training. So the first thing we do is introduce them to human touch. Uh, We want to let them know that humans are the best. So it's, you know, being picked up, being petted, those things. Um, We even start with um, potty training Mm. right off the start. We have little, I don't remember what's in them now. I know we went through several stages. We tried kitty litter at first, um, but they ate the kitty litter. (laughs) My dog (laughs) eats kitty litter. It's disgusting. Ew. <laughs> it's horrifying. <laughs> then they we tried newspapers, but they just shredded those. Sure. So I don't know where we landed, but we have some sort of boxes in there. Then we start potty training before they even go home with a puppy raiser. And then we'll start introducing them to different sounds, um, different surfaces, different people. So I like people come in in like weird costumes and stuff uh, to see if the dog is going to freak out um, because each dog gets an individualized education plan that they have while they are on campus. So say that a dog, we have like little fake, like three, you know, like stairs for like tiny children, toddler stairs. Mm -hmm. And say like they go up to the stairs and they're, you know, they're nervous about going up them. That's something that we're going to know as soon as they're puppies and we can work on it and hopefully get them to be better so that they will make it into a career. So they each have their individualized education plan. They'll have an assessment while they are there on campus, and it'll say things that they're great at, um, things that they're struggling with. So maybe they're struggling with loud noises. It's something that the puppy raiser can work with. Mm. Then they will go home with a puppy raiser on average around nine and a half weeks old. Uh, They'll go home with a puppy raiser, and they'll stay with that puppy raiser for a year. I'm shortening this a little bit because we're changing our puppy raiser program, uh, but it's a very long, convoluted topic to go into. Is that a volunteer position, puppy raisers? Yes, it is volunteer. And it is something that actually the industry is having, like, you know, service dog schools in general, having a really hard time getting puppy raisers now. So that's why we're actually changing our program where now you can raise a puppy for three months, six months or a year to help more people be willing to do it. Cause you know, it's a long commitment to commit to a year right. of raising a puppy. And you get so attached, I imagine too. Oh yes. I, I always say it's, I cannot believe they can give them back. Like puppy raisers are my heroes. I cannot imagine you go through all the horrible stuff with the puppy where it's like teething and like 
go into the bathroom in your house, you get it all perfect. And you're like, here you go. (laughs) Yeah. But it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful good deed. Yeah. So while they're at the puppy raiser home, they get to learn all of their basic obedience skills. Uh, They also are introduced to a lot of new environments. So for instance, like when I was requesting a guide dog, I really wanted a guide dog who'd flown before because I fly a lot, but I really hate flying. I have a lot of anxiety about it. And I was like, cannot have a dog who's never done this before who freaks out on the airplane mm-hmm. because I don't know how to help them mm-hmm. at this that, that like until we level out I would not be any help <laughs> you're both just <laughs> freaking out <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so that was something that I knew I needed uh so they'll you know those there's people who will take them on airplanes Bristol's been on a train not with me but in general after the puppy raiser they come back to campus and they will train Um, For guide dogs, it's five months. Um, For service dogs, it's two to four months. So service dogs for the veterans are very trained individually for each veteran, while a guide dog is trained to do the same, all of the same stuff. Mm. Because, you know, pretty much every person who has a visual impairment is going to need the same things, while a veteran with PTSD, you know, your PTSD can affect you in different ways. So that's why there's a difference in the training length for them. What are some differences in how a service dog might be trained for two different people with PTSD? First of all, they're all trained to do things like a hug, um, which is when the dog lays across your lap. I would show you because Bristol does it because I also have PTSD. Um, These are just things she's picked up on her own. Um, They'll do a chin, which is where they like rest their chin on your leg. Or they'll do cover, which is like covering your feet. Those are all pressure points that are medically like proven to reduce blood pressure. So those are all things that they can do for anxiety. They're all trained to do that. But it would depend, like, if you have PTSD and you also have mobility issues. So say you have a hard time getting up from a seated position. Those dogs can be trained. They'll stand beside you. And then you're not putting your whole weight on the dog because obviously we weigh a lot more than a dog, or at least than a lab, maybe not like a Great Dane or something. (laughs) But (laughs) you'll put your hand like on their withers and you'll use it to steady yourself, to push yourself up. But they're not all trained to do that. We also have some people who have medical issues like migraines. So we have a guy who has one of our dogs who has migraines, and his dog is actually trained to go into the bathroom and get his medicine. Now, his medicine's in like a PVC bottle that can't be bitten through and a pouch. So it's not like the dog can get to the medicine, um, but the dog will go get it and bring it to him. And in the pouch is a toy Um, So the dog gets to play with that specific toy when he brings the medicine. And he actually learned to be able to um, tell before uh, the migraine hit. Um, So he'll actually alert now that the guy's going to have a migraine. That's what's always been the most fascinating to me is these dogs that alert before the thing even happens, before someone Mm -hmm. is faints or before someone has. Yeah. Like, do you understand how they do that? Yeah, <laughs> actually, I do. <laughs> uh, so it is all by smell. So actually, during COVID, um, we trained some dogs to sniff out COVID. So the way that they do this is they have like a wheel. And in the wheel, there's little like, there's, I don't know, it looks kind of like a mobile. And it has little boxes and they each have a scent in it. And the dog will sniff. And if it located the COVID, it got a treat. Um, and so that's how it learned to sniff for COVID. Now, that's harder to do if you like know somebody's coming in with migraines. It's harder to train the dog on that because every I'm, everyone's going to smell differently. Right. 
but the dog will pick up on it. So for instance, um, with Morgan, who has the migraines, would start having a migraine and he would tell Foley to go get the medicine. So Foley started associating that with the smell he was getting off when he had the migraine, which is why he started to being able to alert to it prior to the migraine. And then the same thing happens with me. Uh, like Allison, I have a lot of stomach issues. My stomach does not like me very much. What is, it's so <laughs> annoying. It's like, get it together, tummy. Just just enjoy the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, all, actually, you helped me because uh, you had SIBO, and I actually ended up having SIBO also. Oh, so. wow. It's rampant. <laughs> wow. And yeah. I had never heard of it. Till I hadn't heard of it, it either. Yeah. I, I hadn't heard of it until this podcast. Oh, so. my God. How wild. <laughs> But I have a stomach issue called gastroparesis, um, where basically like my stomach, part of my stomach's paralyzed and it won't digest food. Like it'll, it won't drop the food from my stomach to my lower intestines. It gets stuck. But Bristol will alert me. Like she'll be like, like if I wake up in the morning and I kind of don't feel good, but I'm like probably going to go eat. She'll like literally like come in and like jump all over me. And she'll be like, don't eat food. Really? Yeah. And that's not something she was trained for. It's just something she's realized over time. Oh, I'm going to cry. It's so beautiful. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because you, you, I was Googling something about my dog. And then one of the autofills was like, my dog won't leave me alone. Do I have cancer? <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and like, is that, is that a thing? <laughs> so there are dogs who can sniff cancer. I don't know if that should be your first conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> It was a Google autofill. <laughs> I learned more from Google autofills than using Google myself. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> this is what people are looking for. Because yeah. I was looking for ways to like train beans to not be so anxious. So I was like, my dog won't leave me alone, like training tips or whatever. But it autofilled, do I have cancer? Oh, no. <laughs> Thank God what you're not a hypochondriac. Right, that would have exactly. ruined your day. So it can like sniff out illnesses? Yeah. So, uh, so yes, they can, they, Whoa. they, you know, they have very sensitive noses. I can't remember all the details. We actually had a presentation on it at work because to become a trainer, you have to go through a three-year apprenticeship wow. and, um, the end part, part of it is to do a presentation. So somebody did one on dog senses, but they can, I can't remember. It was like so many times what we can smell. Right. Wow. Um, so they can smell all of those changes that are happening. Wow. And what would you say to people that are like, it's not fair to put your an animal to work? Because um, I feel like there's some people that just like say that without really understanding what's going on. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so there are definitely a lot of people who say that. I will say it's actually something Bristol's puppy raiser said to me one time that she would be so unhappy if she couldn't work. And I completely agree. Uh, she she like wants to work. Um, like when I pull out the harness, she like literally leaps in, into the harness. And we never put a dog in a career it doesn't want. We always say the dog chooses the career. So like we do have our two main programs of guide dog and service dog. But then we also have kids companion dogs, facility therapy dogs. Um, and then we also have for dogs that aren't making it in our program, like a dog who maybe sniffs a lot. Um, we'll take them to the fire department or police. They'll be like bomb and arson dogs or cadaver dogs, things like that. Whoa. We don't train that, but we do like give them to the, the, you know, so they can have a career. But like if we have a dog who is like maybe they're really good at guiding, but they like really don't, you know, they're not enjoying it. They're not like happy. Their tail's not up in the air while they're doing it. Um, we won't put them in that career. We're never going to put them in a career where they'd be 
unhappy. Um, so that's something that we definitely let them choose their career is what we say. And some dogs probably don't make it past the training, right? Yes. So um, for our school, seven out of 10 dogs make it into a career. And that's because we have so many careers in a regular guide dog school that doesn't have all the options. It's like three and a half um, out of 10 make it into a career. Wow. And so for those three dogs, you know, those three dogs were like, you know, what would be great if I could sit on a couch all day. Right. (laughs) What about um, for the children, for kids companions? Like, what is the benefit there? So we have um, two different programs that go into kids companion. We have kids companion dogs for visually impaired kids. Mm -hmm. Those are kids that are too young to get a guide dog. So we started doing guide dogs at 15. Um, That was a program we started like right before COVID hit. Oh, wow. um, good timing. It was like the end of 2019. Those kids, they're not old enough for a guide dog, but we want to make sure, you know, they even want a big dog in their life. Um, they can take care of a dog. Like it's a lot, you know, unlike a cane, you do have to feed your dog, you have to take your dog for walks. Sometimes your dog gets sick. Like there's a lot that goes into having a dog, which is, you know, one of the reasons not everyone chooses to right. get a guide dog. So that they know that's something that they're learning. But it's also, um, speaking as somebody who's been visually impaired my whole life, there's a lot of trauma, anxiety, and things that go into being a child with a visual impairment. And these dogs are something that's very comforting. I would say, you know, they're they're very equivalent to emotional support dog, even though they don't actually fall into that category. They have no access rights or anything. Uh, but there's something, you know, that the kid can go home to and know that there's somebody that's always going to accept them and be with them. Like those dogs are that kid's dog. That kid is the one feeding them, taking them from walks. So it's just like Bristol, like Bristol's always attached to me. Like no matter what I'm doing, she's like there. It's very similar in that way. Our other program is gold, gold star family dogs. For people who don't know a gold star family is a military family who has lost somebody in their family to, in combat. Oh, wow. Obviously that's very traumatic. But it, uh, especially for kids who maybe have lost a parent that way. So we do actually focus on families that have kids. I'm not saying all of them get placed with that, but we do focus on that. Those dogs are there for, for comfort and to help kids have something that's going to make them happy. And also, you know, somewhere they can go that's safe for their, for their grief. Um, and we actually have a, lot of, um, we have a lot of videos for Gold Star families. Um, but we have one in particular where there's a girl, she's like really young. Like I want to say like six or seven and was was like really, really depressed, like suicidal depressed mm-hmm. because her dad died in combat. Um, and this dog has completely turned her entire life around like she wasn't social um, before because she was so afraid that if she became friends with anyone that they were going to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it's a very <laughs> it's a video that makes me cry every time I watch it. Mm-hmm. And that like now she's happy and she's smiling and she's so excited uh, all because of this dog. It's so hard, though, because you can't control what happens to a dog. So it's like, then like the dog dies. Yes. So, I mean, obviously, like, you know, you you outlive a dog. Like Horrifying. I mean, I think about that about beans all the time. So I just had to say it. Sorry. (laughs) No, you're good. Bristol's nine now. So I like think about it because they only live to like 12 or 14. So, um, you know, she's getting up there. But. The uh, we do that is why we have our whole genetics and reproduction department because we're trying to breed out genes that would make the dog die prematurely, like Mm. we or have to be put down. So, like the gene, I always think that we like always are breeding out, um, which is not a you know a gene that would kill a dog, but it's not, it's also one that could you know have you have to put the dog down. 
in the regular population of labs, 40% of them have hip dysplasia. And in our population, only two and a half percent have hip dysplasia. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So those are things that we are breeding out. We're breeding out the genes for exercise-induced collapse. That's a big one that labs have. You know, we're we're trying to breed out people, you know, not people. (laughs) (laughs) Just dog eugenics. Yes. You know, people might be better if we bred them with dogs. Oh, my God. <laughs> They'd have better temperaments, maybe. Yeah, be way nicer. <laughs> um, but, we're, you know, like, we're trying to breed out things for cancer. Um, different just different genes that, that large dogs have a lot and can end up killing them. So that's that's one of the big reasons we actually breed our dogs on campus. And we don't go and rescue dogs. Right, because right. you never know what their medical history is. Right. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. Just between us. And we're back. One of the things that's so cool about your organization is that everyone receives these dogs for free, right? Yes, they do. And so how do you pull that off? Is it all just fundraising and donations and volunteers? Yes. So it's all of those things. Uh, So (laughs) like Gabe said, I work in fundraising. (laughs) So all of our donations come from individual donors or corporations um, or foundations. We don't take any government funding. Oh, wow. wow. And all of our, so yeah, like you said, all of our dogs are given for free. And we do have about 300 campus volunteers. Um, and then we have around 500 puppy raiser volunteers. Wow. Not that those are all puppy raising at one time. Um, obviously, like maybe you had a puppy for a year and then you're like, I need a break mm-hmm. before I get another puppy. Or, you know, maybe you think that experience was really hard. I don't want to do it again. So, but, you know, 500 um puppy raisers as well. And we do, we do have a large budget. Um, so our budget last year was 16 million. Um, our fiscal year started over in July 1st. So, um, our budget this year is $18.8 million. That's what you have to spend. That's what we have to raise. Oh, that's what you have to raise. I mean, that's what we, yes. Well, I mean that we do have, we do also need to spend it, but that is also what we have to raise. <laughs> wow. Wow. To keep yeah. everything going, to provide all the dogs and everything. Wow. 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 Yeah. So it, it costs about $60,000 from the start to the end, which is includes like the placement on campus of the um, guide dogs with their with their handler. Wow! And so it's about sixty thousand dollars. And how many dogs do you normally have on campus at one time? So that varies depending how many puppies are born. Um, it's usually I want to say it's somewhere between one hundred and one hundred and fifty, depending how many how many puppies are born. And is there a long wait list for people to get placed with a dog? Yes, there is a very long wait list. Part of it's because of COVID. Uh, you know, we're s- still like we we had to um, stop breeding dogs for a little while during COVID. But also a lot of dogs. De- so from the start to the end is two years. So you got to think like if a puppy was born during COVID. Yeah. Two years later is when it's going to be placed. So like right. you're feeling the repercussions for so long after mm-hmm. COVID. Um, but a lot of the dogs, like during COVID, a lot of the puppies didn't get exposed to all the stuff they needed to be exposed mm-hmm. to. Um, so they didn't necessarily make it um, just because, you know, everything was closed. And- right. So someone would like normally, like, how long does it take? Like if you're on a wait list, are you looking at like five years, 10 years? Like No, no not that okay. long. <laughs> I wanted to make it, I wanted to, to over guess. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> if it took that long, people would not be waiting. <laughs> but it is, it is a while. It's about, it's a, a, about a year right now. Um, it used to be a little bit shorter. We do have a wait list. Um, we have a total number of people like in the pipeline is around 300 wow. right now. And I think about 150 of those are approved. Um, so when you put in your application, you're not necessarily automatically going to get approved. There's a lot that goes into that as well. So the average is about a year. Um, but also when you're getting a dog, um, so our school only does labs now. Mm. Um, we used to do golden retrievers. We don't do them anymore because they didn't make it into a career as often. And because if you focus on one breed, you can get the best genetics out of it. But people do come and they're like requesting things. Like they're like, I want a black and tan. Mm. Now, <laughs> really? that's like super rare. Like I think I've seen like, two in the five years I've worked at Southeastern. Um, So obviously you're going to be waiting a long time, but if you request less stuff, you're going to get a dog faster, but it also depends. So when in the matching process, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, Your lifestyle, like I said, I'm high energy and constantly going. So I needed a high energy guide dog that could like go to Disney world with me or go to rock concerts or like go hiking things that, you know, take a lot of energy that we're going to be going like all day long. But if you are like somebody who walks slower, you're going to need like a sturdier dog who walks slower. Mm-hmm. Like Bristol and I walk really fast. That's one of the things they look for pace. Um, and they look for how much pull you can take. So like Bristol will literally like pull my arm off, <laughs> especially if I'm not walking fast enough for her at that time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's something, it just depends, you know, what dogs are coming in if we have a dog that's going to match you. I have a question, like if you if you're on an airplane or you're somewhere and you see someone with a a guide dog, you're not supposed they have the sign like don't pet me or like you're not supposed to. How would the average person interact with with a dog like that or an emotional, you know, like, are you supposed to be like, "Ah!" because like it's hard for me to see a dog and not be like dog, you know, (laughs) so uh, how do you like what's the right way for us to behave? So what I could say is don't interact with them at all. I know I know it's hard. Um, a lot of people do pet them or a lot of people will come up and be like, I can't pet you. No, I can't. Mm. Which just gets them really excited because you're talking in a high pitch voice. And the reason for that is, like I said, like Bristol keeps me from getting hit by like cars. If you distract her and I'm like walking into a street, like I could get hit by a car and die. Mm-hmm. Like that's I mean, it's literally like life and death like that. Some are like getting injured or like when I used to live in Charleston, South Carolina. I don't know if you guys have ever been there, but there's like a market that you walk down. And it wasn't long after I had had Bristol, like maybe I'd had her for like six months. And um, we were walking through there and somebody was like walking beside us and started petting her. And then like I ran into this guy and then the guy got mad at me. And I was like, it's not my fault. This person distracted my dog. Like, you know, so and and, like I could have hurt them or I could have like gotten hurt, you know, all because somebody, you know, distracted the dog. So that's they're doing a a job. And I know it's hard. Like Bristol likes to look at people with her big puppy dog Mm -hmm. eyes and be like, pet me. So I understand that it's hard, but it is like something, you know, they're, they're constantly working. And for like a dog, that's like a PTSD dog. Like it needs to be focused on its human Mm -hmm. at all times. Um, because otherwise it's, it may miss that they're having an anxiety attack and not get to them before it gets into full, full blown Mm -hmm. anxiety attack. And I always think of anxiety, like when you're sitting on the train, you could probably stop the like get off. But once the train is going, like it's going, probably, you know. 
And where do the dogs that don't get placed in a career go? Are those available for rescue or do you send them certain places? Yeah. So the puppy raiser gets first dibs on adopting them. If they don't adopt them, we do then have an adoption list. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is $5,000 to adopt a guide dog puppy. That's just, um, or, you know, could, could be not a puppy anymore, but a guide dog a, that has been transferred out of all careers. Uh, and that's just a recovery fee. Cause like I said, it does cost $60,000 to, um, you know, train them. So h- however far they're in training, like we just need to get some of that money back. Um, but it is, it is a donation. And if they have a medical issue and that's why they didn't get transferred out, that fee could be less. Mm-hmm. Cause we know that you're going to be paying for their medical, you know, stuff. It's so funny to have a dog and be like, this is my little flunk. You flunked out. <laughs> this is my little <laughs> dog who flunked out of school. Yeah. But I guarantee it's better trained than most dogs. Right. That's why people will pay the $5,000. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and a lot of people who adopt them are people that are already like our donors. So they, you know, they're right. people who already donate to us right. uh, anyway. Wow. This is, I mean, unbelievable to think that, to think that I already love dogs before this. And also that, <laughs> no. that inter, I love that. I always think about how interspecies, you know, like we've, we've come to take care of each other and like love each other and, and benefit each other. And it's just like really beautiful. I love it. And and are you, you're available? I know you're located in Florida, but like are people all over the country coming to get dogs from you? Yes, we have dogs in 41 states with graduates. I mean, we have dogs in 48 states if you include people who are puppy raisers. Do the dogs get a little like graduation cap or? <laughs> we do have a graduation. They do not get a cap. Um, That would be awesome. Well, take and that under consideration. Like <laughs> they go up, they get their little diplomas. <laughs> We, so all the um, all the human graduates do get a diploma when you leave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. This was amazing. And now I'd love to ask you to play a very silly game show. Yes, that's the only reason I came on here. I just want to play hypothetical. Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. For new listeners, hypotheticals is a game show where you and Gabe are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions that you might have, and then you tell me what you would do in that situation, and I pick a winner. You ready? Are you? Do you yeah, feel it seems like Katie's been prepping for this her whole life. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? On the night that you proposed to your partner of two years, Mm. they confess that nine months ago, they slept with their ex one last time before coming to their senses and realizing they only want to be with you, but felt you needed to know and would understand if you no longer want to marry them. (gasps) Would you stay with this cheater? No. What the hell? They let me go through the whole engagement and like proposal and everything. Well, the proposal was fast. You walked, they walked into your apartment and you had a big sign up. Oh my God. Okay. Speaking as someone with a broken engagement, like, why don't y'all talk about being on the same page before that happens? You know what I mean? As someone who's also had a broken engagement, sometimes that doesn't help. You know what? And this is this is us. This is the two like the two hands like shaking hands is us too. Uh, I yeah no I gotta go nine months ago yeah and we'd only been together for like a year and a half at that point no fuck that who's Did the you say ex? two years yeah it's only been two years Katie 
Yeah, but I'm excited. If like you've been together for a year and three months, I don't know. That's like a long enough time that I feel you should have known whether or not you wanted to be with me or your ex. Right. Yeah. And the ex <laughs> is part of your friend group. Oh, that's awkward. So what, would you stay, Katie? Uh, I'm going to go with no. I, I would not. I, I'm more upset that they that they couldn't figure that out before we were dating for a year and three months. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. This is like the most cut and dry. Yeah, I know. There's would no you debate. stay with this cheater you've ever had? But what about like if you were just so excited to get engaged and like you had all of your friends and family hiding in the next room? Then I feel like there's a pressure to be like, forget it. Let's let's do this anyway. So, OK, I think about that, like when someone gets proposed to on a Jumbotron, just say yes in the moment. And then when you're alone, be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> but that's so I don't know. I I I my whole family would be like, oh, well, Katie doesn't want to get married anyway. So she totally would be <laughs> fine, like, just being like, OK, we're not going to do this <laughs> at your wedding. Does Bristol get to wear a tuxedo? Katie just said she doesn't want to get married. But if you did, would Bristol <laughs> wear a tuxedo? I think she would wear like a little dress and maybe like a bow. Oh my yeah. She'd goodness. definitely be in the wedding. Absolutely. For Sugar's sure. wearing a tutu. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> By the time this comes out, it will have already happened. It will have been the cutest thing that's ever occurred. We'll post a picture. <laughs> Okay, so we're all leaving. Fair enough. I made that one too easy. Yeah. Um, our next game is, are you a terrible parent? Okay. Your child, 22, volunteers to be one of the first humans sent to Mars. Love it. Even though it is very dangerous and they will never return to Earth. Not wanting to never see your kid again, you send in videos from your ring camera of your kid smoking weed, which disqualifies them from the mission. Are you a terrible parent? I really thought you were going to say, so you sign up to also go. <laughs> Can you fucking imagine? That would be a good parent. <laughs> no, my parents would do that. And I, I would see them on the ship and be like, are you fucking kidding me? I think you're a terrible parent. You Why? Think so? Even if they're only 22. But you're ruining their dream. It's their dream right now. Right. If they were older, if they were 30, I think it's bad. But 22, I think it's okay. <laughs> I mean, they they would never come back, not because they're dead. Like, it takes six months to get to Mars. Then you live there. Yeah. And you probably would also probably die on the way because it's, it's not really safe yet. No, no, no. You could get there. I'm in my hypothetical. Oh. Oh. <laughs> You sent a video of them smoking pot, which means not only did you disqualify them now, but if it becomes safer <gasps> later when they're older, they're never going to get to go because now that's on their record. Wow. You just solved it. Yeah, Katie's right. You're a bad parent. <laughs> I think instead what you do is the day they're supposed to go, you kidnap them. Again, you're giving <laughs> my parents they, ideas. And they miss the launch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's heinous. I know. But 22 can't. You can't make what that kind you, of decision. What if you just talk to them and we're like, I don't think you should go. Whenever you talk to your kid, they go. Well, that's a really bad kid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> who would want to be stuck on Mars with them? I honestly, well, you know, who wants to be stuck on Earth with them? Exactly. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> okay. Our final game, which is also written in by a listener. Based wow. on a true story. So I didn't write this one. This was submitted from a listener. I like that we're getting them submitted now. I know. It's great. It's less work for me. Okay. It's a would you forgive this liar? Okay. 
You wake up with a new freckle on your forehead and you are upset because you don't like it there and you feel it makes you look bad. You obsess over your appearance and you believe that you are less attractive because of this new blemish. Mm. A week later, your partner of one year wakes up with a new freckle on their forehead too. It makes you feel better because you like it on them and you're able to get over your insecurity about your own forehead freckle. One year later, you wake up earlier than your partner and kiss their forehead. You notice that their freckle is gone. No. When they wake up, you tell them about this and they get really weird. Upon further pressing, they admit that they have been waking up early to draw on a freckle every day to make you feel better about yours. Would you forgive this liar? This is a true story. It said based on a true story. So I don't know how explicitly true every detail is, but there must be some truth to it. How did they never notice before? Like there was, they never like, it's your partner, right? Like you never showered together or anything where the freckle would wash off. They they developed a fear of water. Get out of (laughs) here. So now my partner smells bad. Now they smell bad. Because oh, no, but they, well, they do this whole thing where they pretend they have a fear of water, but then privately they take their showers and reapply their freckle. Okay. Also, here's the other thing is that, is that how often does like a new freckle show up? And wouldn't I be suspicious if my partner also got a new freckle? I'd be like, we have bed bugs. Oh my God. Don't even talk about that. You know what I mean? Like, I'd be like, why are we both having this freckle? We should go to the doctor. You wake up with your partner, you have matching freckles. Were we abducted by aliens? Why do we both have the same freckle? That's suspicious. So it's really your fault for believing them? Yeah, and I also thought that they were waking up and drawing the freckle on me every morning. Well, that would have been really weird. But like, right, maybe <laughs> to maybe to, to keep me. Oh, they're like, wow, our relationship is falling apart. We need more things in common. <laughs> Then that's a really bad lie. <laughs> yeah, I got to go. I'm not staying. You're creeping me out. Would you forgive? I think it's like a sweet intention. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I feel like the fear of water thing took it too far. <laughs> Imagine how weird it is. You guys like go out with your friends. Your friends are like, you guys have matching freckles now. I would just, it would just be like, oh, we would be like, yeah, I guess we got matching tattoos. Like, how do you explain that to people? Like you walking around with your partner, you both have the same freckle. That looks. You just- think that many people would notice it? I don't think if that many that people m- would notice if- it. I'm sorry. Melissa thinks me and my boyfriend look exactly alike and we don't. So people would notice. You have your little like cute like chin freckle. If John suddenly had that same chin freckle, you wouldn't be like, that's weird. I guess. I don't really know what John's chin looks like if I'm being honest. <laughs> I think that they should have woken up and and when you saw it, you they should have been like, oh, I went and got it lasered off yesterday. They should have kept the lie going. Oh, so they didn't lie well enough. Yeah. Interesting. That's it. Why didn't they bring you to get it lasered off too if you're so they, self-conscious? They wanted, they wanted to know if it was going to work first before okay, they took that's you. a great lie. Wow. You're fast on your feet and I like it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for coming. Where can people follow you? Where can people donate and get involved? Yes. Yeah. So if you want to follow me specifically, I don't post a lot, but you can follow me. Um, I'm on Instagram at Kat and Briss, like with a K beginning of my name. That's what happens when you only join Instagram a year ago. All the, you know, if you want to follow Southeastern Guide Dogs, it's S-E Guide Dogs. On Instagram, um, our website's guidedogs.org. Oh. Make sure you have that S on there or you're going to end up at the school in New York. 
And if you would like to donate, feel free to email me at katie.mccoy at guidedogs.org. And if you want to know more about guide dogs, um, if you're looking to get one, you can feel free to email me or also um, you can call Southeastern Guide Dogs. And that would have been helpful if I had the phone number pulled up right then. Oh, well, that's <laughs> we'll okay. put it in the description. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so much. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about ethical wealth. Just between us, it's time for Topic! X, 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 X. Baby. 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 French. Mm-hmm. You did Italian last time. Now you're doing French. International ho. International ho. <laughs> Do you know what baby is in Hebrew? No. Tinook. Oh. Isn't that cute? Little Tinook. So this week, I wanted to talk about ethical wealth, because I think we often talk about how unethical billionaires are. Mm. But I wonder if there is a way to be like pretty wealthy in an ethical way. Mm. You know, like there's like the idea of like effective altruism, where Mm. you make a lot of money so that you can give a lot of money away. Mm -hmm. What do you think? So I have a podcast called Bad With Money. What? It's my other show. Never heard of it. Plus my second other show, The New Guys. Um, But so on Bad With Money, we talk about this all the time. And we just did an episode uh, about Warren Buffett. And we have done episodes about billionaires before. And there are people like Bill Gates, like Warren Buffett, who believe themselves to be very altruistic and very giving and very uh, wealthy people who are good. Dave Ramsey's another one. But the thing is, is the conclusion I keep coming to is that if you are if you are super wealthy and you give money to charity rather than advocate to pay more taxes what you're saying is i want to control where my altruism goes so for example and i understand like some people right they care more about animals so they want to do the aspca or they care more about x y and z but what ends up happening is a lot of times it goes by old school or Christian or very like conservative values where they are, they're like, who deserves my money is this church and who doesn't deserve my money is whoever the government decides, a.k.a. people on welfare, a.k.a. people of color usually. Do you know what I mean? Like what we've come to as a realization on Bad With Money or what I've come to is that people who are ethically wealthy a lot of times it comes down to control. They want to control what sort of good deeds or where their money does good. And where it does good is based on their own ethics and not based on like who, and not even their own ethics, their own biases, their own racism, their own beliefs versus what may actually be equitable. Does that make sense? But what about just like a millionaire? Right. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking more about somebody who has like $10 million. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But even then, it's some it's usually I think it comes down to, again, like sort of wanting to wanting to control the use of the money. But what if you're somebody that's like a millionaire who has a company where you pay everybody like above market market pay? Yeah. Uh Yeah. I like that. And you donate a lot of money and you know you give back you volunteer like yeah yeah you eat local yeah you don't you don't use amazon Mm -hmm. like that's a big thing is i think that that if you're wealthy you can afford 
to use more ethical brands. Yes, sure. You can like afford the extra like green tax or whatever. Mm-hmm. You can you can like be more cognizant about what you're engaging with. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you take those steps, and I think the other really big thing that Melissa said is that you're paying everyone really fairly. Like I think that like if you have like a nanny, you should be paying your nanny even more than a livable wage. Yes. Yeah. Like, they should know, be making per child. Per child. Yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah. I think that's how you kind of do it, because obviously, like, yeah, you can campaign to, like, change the tax laws. But if you're like, you know, somewhere where, like, you know, you maybe all told with your assets have like five million dollars in assets, mm-hmm. and, you know, like, I think uh, you you can make choices in your daily life and the way that you relate to the people that are in your life mm-hmm. that is more ethical than Definitely. Then people who don't think about it. Uh-huh. And also with taxes, I mean, a lot of the problem is, is that they'll still find ways to get around it anyway. So it doesn't, there's still like, you know, the ways in which this is done is all needs to be overhauled. But but like so, you don't try to find loopholes. Like yeah. you do, right, just, right, you do right. just pay your taxes and you're not hiding your money. Right, right. And you do like give back to the community. And, you know, like you find out that like your neighbor went through something bad and needs a GoFundMe and you just donate you just the pay whole it. amount. Yeah. Like, you know, I think yeah. there's just such different ways to, to live with wealth where there's like hoarding, mm-hmm. which I think is what a lot of people do. Yes. Where it's like, I just need more, I need more, and I need more. And they just like keep increasing their lifestyle. But mm-hmm. not increasing the people around them. Right. And I think like there's kind of a level of like what is a cool lifestyle. And then mm-hmm. from there, it's surplus that you can like give back yeah. into to the world with. Yeah, it's super individualized. But as long as... I think it, b- people become very used to a number very quickly mm. and then the perspective shifts and they it, what they view as enough changes. Yeah. And the goalposts keep moving. And so then they're like, well, I couldn't possibly give away because I haven't reached this number. I couldn't possibly. Um, and you just like lose a gr- your grip on the average person's life. It happens way faster than you would think. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm torn. I, I really don't. I don't have an answer. I'm sort of grappling with a few things in my mind right now as we speak. I'm not sure what my opinion is. Wow. What's the today's date? <laughs> of July. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, Something I think about all the time. Like, if I was a famous actor, mm-hmm. I would constantly be in commercials and do branded deals and then donate all that money. Yeah. Right. Because then it's like I make my living off of like my acting. Mm -hmm. But then I would do all these like commercials and sponsorships and Mm -hmm. all these things. And then that money would be just donated. But Mm. then are you taking a job from somebody else? Another famous person? No, like a commercial actor. Yeah. Well, no, because you're famous. So they would need like. You know, like yeah, they're not going to give. It's not Brad Pitt or the guy who auditioned. Got it. They were going to give it to. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm very torn. I was going to say like Samuel L. Jackson, how he does like Capital One commercials, right? But exactly. it's also in Marvel, so he has. He's so got much Marvel money. money. Uh-huh. Keep your Marvel money, or potentially more. Keep more of it. But then when you're doing Capital One, that should all be donated. That's a way to donate your time most effectively. Is you could probably make so much money doing commercials and then just donate it. Yeah. I mean, but then it's also like, okay, you have to make sure that those are ethical companies, but then also it kind of doesn't matter because if you just take their money yes. and then give it to what you want to give it to, then you're that's Robin cool. Hooding. Then that's you're sort of Robin Hooding, yeah. I guess. Cause when I see these like very famous celebrities doing these commercials, I'm like, why are they doing this? 
Like yeah. they probably don't need this money. And so that's the only thing that really makes sense Unless they have lifestyle creep and they start to be like, I need a bigger home. I need a bigger this. Let me do this. Let me do this. I need more. I need more. You know right. what I mean? And then that gets into the not being ethical. Right. Mm-hmm. I think having a sense of of this is good enough is really important of like, I don't need the bigger house. I don't need like still instead of like striving for more being like, this is the lifestyle I'm happy at. And mm-hmm. then the rest is the surplus. Yeah. Like this Jim Carrey. Uh, yes. We were just saying Melissa. Mm-hmm. Melissa and I did an episode of the podcast with uh, Manisha the core. Right. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about how uh, the Jim Carrey gave an interview where he was like, unless there, a script comes across my desk, that's like the best thing ever. I'm not really going to do it because I have enough money. Yeah. I think like doing the mental work to get to a place where you can say I have enough money is a is the route to ethical wealth. Yep. And some people also it's performative, like the giving. And again, I'm talking about billionaires, but they're like, you know, they'll say, oh, we're doing the giving pledge. Oh, we're going to give all our money away when we die. And it's like, OK, do it now. Right. Prove it. Do it now. Like, I don't know. I It's also so complicated. Like Megan Fox just got in trouble because she posted a GoFundMe for uh, some a cl- someone who it's like her wardrobe person or her hair person or something. And the dad is really sick. And uh, so she posted the GoFundMe for the dad and she got a bunch of flack because people were like, why don't you just pay for it? Yeah. And then she like posted and was like, the person asked me to post the GoFundMe. I posted it. I donated money to the GoFundMe. But just so you know, like she thought that it would be weird and change our power dynamic and be kind of strange if I covered this whole thing. So she asked if I could send it to my fans and they could do little bit by little bit, like stop judging me, you weirdos. But then people were still like, is it like, oh, let's have a weird power dynamic versus my dad is dead? Like, just do it. I know. I thought that was weird that she didn't just pay the money. But yeah. it's also like, but I under kind of understood where she was coming from because there are people who just like simply will not. Like, I have friends who I've offered things to and they just simply will yeah, not take are it. Are those people also creating GoFundMes? No. Like, if you're creating a GoFundMe, you're open to receiving money from people you know. And I am. If someone wants to patronize me in Melissa's film, mm-hmm. <laughs> please pay for the whole thing. Yeah. And I think that she could have secretly paid right. for it. Exactly. Right. So I don't know. I think. But like, it's up to the person's wishes. I don't know. I don't know. I guess. But I also feel like, oh, don't pay for all of this. Megan Fox and Megan Fox does it. They'd be like, take the money back. No, they'd be like, thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, um, Megan Fox, if. It didn't want to come directly. Megan Fox has a lot of wealthy friends. She could have just like sent it to her friends. Oh, yeah. she could have been like, "This is a this is a donation from Fagan Mox," and it's like anonymous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I just think if you're wealthy, you have to be really mindful. Like, I think that like once you hit a certain level, like you just like the way that you operate. If you if you care about being ethically wealthy, has to shift over. And people will say, oh, you're not making like good business decisions necessarily. Ugh. But it's like, I'm not living for business. I'm mm-hmm. living to be a good a good force in this world and not just for myself. Absolutely. It's like, you know, I get some flack on Bad With Money from people saying, you're asking people to donate to ESG funds, which are are largely more ethical. And they're like, those don't do as well as ETFs, which are other index funds, which is not true. And I'm like, oh, I'm not 
here to make you rich. Like the premise of this show was never, you'll be rich. Like the premise of this show was here's some information and like, you know, I'm going to try to present it in a way that allows you to like live a good life ethically. Like I'm not, this isn't a show being like donate, like buy crypto and oil. You know what I mean? Like just not my bag, baby. What do we rate this episode? I'll give it 30 out of 20. I wrote my animal project on penguins. Oh, I love penguins. Those are so cool. Very cool. I will rate it 80 out of 24 humps. Mm. Okay. (laughs) I'll rate it 1,000 out of 999 doggies. Great. Thank you to Katie McCoy for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabe Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Montz. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, you can follow this podcast at Just Between Us Pod on TikTok and at JBU Podcast on Instagram. Also, I'm on Instagram now at Gabe S. Dunn. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Raskin. And on TikTok at, at Allison Raskin Baby. And I'm on TikTok as Dabby Gun. So branding's going really well over here. Yeah, good luck finding us. Forever. Dog.